The text will be 1 Timothy chapter 2. The great redemptive work, really, of the whole universe, God's plan to, to bring people from death to life, to snatch them from the fire of hell, was revealed very, very early. In the garden, actually. The Garden of Eden. Adam originally was alone on the earth, and there was no suitable helper found for him. He was put there to work and to keep it, we are told, to serve and to guard it. But he had no helper, so God put him to sleep gently and pierced his side and took a rib. And from man made woman, from his own body, and they lived in the Garden of Eden. And this was a special place of worship. It was set apart from the rest of the earth as the place to have communion with God. Plot twist. A serpent slithered into the garden. The man was weak. The woman was deceived. Fellowship with God was broken. But when God came, he told the man and the woman that he would someday produce a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Today we're going to talk about that seed of the woman, that offspring of the woman. The text is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired word. I'll read the first seven verses for context. This is the inspired word of God. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of, our, of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth and I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray in Jesus' name that our eyes would be opened, that our hearts would be softened, that our ears would be unplugged, that your Spirit would open our hearts to receive your word, that Christ Jesus would be glorified. And we pray it in his name. Amen. The focus of the sermon will be on 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Christ is our mediator. So we're going to talk about why we needed a mediator, what happened with Adam. He seemed to be our first mediator. We'll talk about how Jesus came as God and man, and 
really what a gift it is. But first, let's kind of try to flesh out what a mediator is supposed to do. It's not a word that you generally will use on a daily basis, unless you're involved in some legal proceedings or something. Mediation or a mediator is not something we think about too often. One of my favorites, I don't watch much television at all, but when I do, I kind of go back to the same old things that I like. And I like a guy named Caesar Milan. I don't know if you guys have heard of this guy. He's called the Dog Whisperer. People have dogs, and these dogs just have terrible problems. I've got a couple of dogs like this. They cannot listen. They don't obey. They're maybe even dangerous. Like Megan's dog. That dog will kill you. Megan's not here, so I can talk about her dog. So if you have a problem with a dog, you call Caesar Milan. He's the dog whisperer. When, seem, when it seems like things will never change, you call the man who understands the dogs well. And this is his claim. He understands the dog. He speaks the language of dogs in a way that no other human can. He's the mediator between the dog owners and the dogs themselves, in a way. He actually says that he doesn't train dogs, he trains the owners of dogs. He trains humans. Because dogs are just pack animals, but anyway, that's another part of the show. But he's the mediator in the show between the dogs and their owners. It's a silly example, but an infinitely more profound way Man needs a mediator between God and man. If we're to ever know and if we're to ever worship God, we need a mediator. We need someone to explain God to us, to tell us about God. Well, why is that? We'll talk about that. First, let's look at Adam's failure as a mediator. The reason we need a mediator between God and man in the first place was that Adam failed. There were three aspects to Adam's mediatorial role, if you will, on the earth. Adam was created as a prophet, as a priest, and a king. Let's talk about each one of those. A prophet. The role of a prophet. The role of a prophet is to proclaim the word of God. It's really that simple. The prophets of the Old Testament were like covenant enforcers. They proclaimed God's word, the stipulations of the covenant between God and man, and reminded the people of the great reward that would come for obeying the word and the great displeasure of God in disobedience and the punishment that would follow. The prophets teach others what God says and requires. They essentially proclaim the word of God. Today we don't have prophets anymore. The office of prophet is over. What God has given you, rather, are pastors who proclaim the word of God to you. And in a sense, a pastor does the function of a prophet, proclaiming God's word. Like the prophet, the pastor works only for God, not for any man. So the Old Testament prophets were doing what Adam should have been doing as well. But you might wonder how Adam was 
a prophet? Like, who was he prophesying to exactly? And what word had God given him? Did he have any words from God at all? Did he even have an audience to proclaim these words to? Well, the answer on both counts is yes, he did. Genesis 2, verse 16, here's the word that God gave him. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. So there were were two trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and all the other trees out there as well were used for food. But these two trees, tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, represented the covenant, if you will, between God and Adam, the covenant of works. If they obeyed God, they would live forever in perfect harmony and unity in the garden. And if they rebelled against God and disobeyed, they would die. And these trees were seals of that covenant. And Adam had one clear instruction, don't eat of that tree. God gave these instructions for worship to Adam before Eve was ever created. How would she find out? Well, we don't know how often or how much God actually spoke to Adam and Eve after he created them. But we think they were in communion. But what we know from the text is that God never tells this to Eve. He tells Adam. And it seems that Adam was to speak these words of life to Eve to his little congregation. The requirements of worship were to go from Adam to Eve, and Adam failed. He failed at the moment of temptation when the serpent came to Eve. She seemed confused about the requirements of the covenant, confused about God's word, and Adam, who was with her, he failed to speak. He didn't say a word. He was with her. He was there. And he did not say anything. He did not correct the great heresy of the serpent. And they sinned. So that's our prophet, our first prophet, and his failure. But he was also a priest. The role of a priest is to intercede between God and and man, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God for sin, And you might not think that this is part of Adam's job description either. What did he do as a priest? But he was a priest. I'll show you. Genesis 2 verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Different translations translate the words work and keep differently because the Hebrew has some nuance to it. Could be to serve it and to guard it. As well, to work and to keep, to serve and to guard. That's the job that Adam had in the garden. So the words for work and keep are used here for Adam. And whenever the priestly functions are described in Leviticus and in Numbers, these same two words are often found right next to each other as well, describing the work of a priest. I'll just give you one example. Numbers 18, verse 7. Same two words are used. You and your sons with you shall guard, shall guard, that's the keep, shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar, and that is within the veil, and you shall serve, that's the word for work, 
you shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift, and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. So he's like a priest. He's to work and to keep. He's to guard and to serve. And notice that no one else is allowed to be in that place of worship. No one else is allowed to approach the altar of God unless they've taken a Nazarite vow. But no one else but the priest. And anyone who does, what? They're put to death. So the garden also is to be a kind of temple to the Lord for His worship. There were many indications of this. The door of the temple... The temple and the tabernacle, the door and the, the, the tabernacle and the temple faced the direction of east. The garden door was facing what direction? East. The door of both places faced the same direction. Well, that's a small detail. You remember when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, it was guarded by two angels with flaming swords, the Bible says. If you think of the Holy of Holies, you've got the Ark of the Covenant. And what's on top of the covenant? Two angels with their arms outstretched. The lampstands in the temple were made to look like trees. Kind of a menorah look. Olive trees. And all over the descriptions of the Solomon's temple, you see descriptions of fruits and pomegranates and all kinds of plants. It seems that the temple was meant to look like the Garden of Eden. The first temple. So Adam was a priest and he had his own temple. And he was supposed to lead his wife in worship of the holy God in that place. To work and to guard the garden as a priest would. So when the serpent came into the garden, he was not just sliding across the ground in the middle of nowhere. He was coming into the very center of the place of worship of Almighty God. What should the priest do in that instance with anyone unauthorized in the temple? You kill that person. They are not authorized to be there. He's an unauthorized intruder. Adam did not do that. He failed to preserve right worship of Yahweh. He did not guard his temple He failed to intercede for Eve and her moment of temptation. So he's 0 for 2 as prophet and priest. But how about king? The role of a king, I think, is more familiar to us. There are still kings today uh, that we know. A king rules. A king protects. Uh, Adam, you might say, probably didn't know he was a king in the way that we would see a king today, but he had the same authority. Look in verse 26 of chapter 1 in Genesis. Adam was said to have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds and the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth. That was his dominion. Sounds kingly, doesn't it? He was told to fill the earth and subdue it and to have dominion over it. Verse 28. So as the role of king to have dominion over the earth, he was to protect those under his reign from anything that might harm them. Yet in the moment of temptation, we know when the serpent entered, he did not protect the serpent. He did not crush the serpent's head as he should have. Someone else had to do that. He did nothing but watch and then make excuses when God showed up. 
So Adam was supposed to serve as prophet, priest, and king, and he failed in all three counts. He was 0 for 3. 0 for. And all mankind fell with Adam into sin and misery. We fell so far that there's not one iota of righteousness stirring in our brains apart from Christ, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. We fell so hard that our whole nature is corrupt. Our soul, our body, and every bit of it is depraved. After the fall, we lost mankind, lost communion with God, and we are justly under His wrath and curse, and our future is misery and hell forever. You see, man needed a better Adam. We needed a better prophet, priest, and king. We needed a better redeemer. We needed a Messiah. We needed a Savior. We needed a mediator, someone to come between the holy God and us as sinful, depraved humanity. And that redeemer, that mediator is Jesus, the Son of God. That's what our scripture says today. There is only one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. He came between us. So how did he do that? This is the second point. How did he come? He came as God and man. The hypostatic union, theologians call it. He's 100% God and 100% man, and it's 200% goodness for humanity. And lest you think that Jesus leaving heaven and earth, or leaving heaven to come to earth was some kind of plan B or some kind of afterthought, let me just dispel that notion very quickly. All through the Scriptures, we are told that this was the plan before the foundations of the earth. From all eternity, this was the plan. Not that God planned evil or planned for man to sin, but somehow in His sovereignty and in His power and in His knowledge, this was the plan. Revelation 13.8 All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the earth. Doesn't sound like plan B. Acts 2.23. This is Peter's first sermon. And it was a good one. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It happened in time these lawless men crucified the Son of God, but it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So from all eternity, this was the plan. And not only that, God had planned to give His Son a people for His own possession. That's why in John chapter 6 and in John 14, you hear Jesus talking about these people that the Father had given Him that He would die for them. But it still doesn't answer the question why our Redeemer, our Mediator, had to be God and man. Why is that? An angel, couldn't that do the job? Couldn't He send His best angel to earth? No, that would not work. Why? The sin of Adam was a sin of man. God required the just response for that sin be meted out to man. 
If God failed to respond to sin, He would not be God. God had to respond. And His justice was that He had to punish the sin of mankind. So in this reconciliation, there had to be a representative of God and a representative of man. But what man could possibly make a right sacrifice and not fail in the way that Adam failed? Who exists that can do that? Nobody is the answer. Adam failed, and all of Adam's sons would fail after him. How could a representative of mankind not fail? Well, this is the beauty and the wonder of Jesus. He sent His only Son as a full human and as a full God. Fully God. Two natures in one person. They're not disunified. They're in no way separate. This is somehow 100% God and 100% man in one person. And why did He come? He came to be a propitiation for our sins. That's the mediation we needed. This means He was an atonement. He was a sacrifice for our sins. But He also took the just wrath of God upon Himself on the cross. So as a man, how did He come? Well, we know by reading the Scriptures, the New Testament, it's about Jesus explicitly describing what happened and how He came. Philippians 2.6 describes it in a very helpful way. Our prophet our priest and our king did not come as a king. Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to. He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because only man could pay for man's sin, he came as a man. A human in every sense of the term. Fully human. Thoughts, words, deeds. Human. He had to redeem all of man, so he became 100% man. He lived the life that the first Adam should have lived. That we all should live. He did it to redeem man. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Only Jesus, the perfect man, was that sacrifice to take away sin. But He was also God, the eternal God. Only God could bear the wrath of God on the cross, the eternal wrath of God. He was God and man, and it's wonderful. It's always been a, a source of great wonder for those who think of it. These are some of my favorite men who have thought on this. The 19th century Scottish pastor George Smeaton, he wrote, A mere man could no more redeem the world as he could create the world. The restorer of man must be the maker of man. It's good, isn't it? Here's Herman Bavink. He does not stand between two parties. He is those two parties in his one person. It's also very helpful. 
Jesus as God reconciles God to man, and as man reconciles man with God, as Thomas Goodwin wrote in Jesus, heaven and earth met and kissed one another. It's beautiful. So here's the story of our redemption. This is the last point is our gift. The story of our redemption. To save man, God saw that man was wicked. It was impossible for him to come to God because of his wickedness, his depravity. He was under the curse. So he sent his son to propitiate his wrath, to allay his wrath. And because of the life and death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, he conquered sin and death. He became the perfect sacrifice. He redeemed his elect to himself. And because of this great work, the unsolvable problem of the sinful man relating to a holy God is solved. And Jesus did all this, and He provided all this to save us. So because of Jesus, our mediator, we are saved. We have salvation. Oh, the benefits of this mediation for all of us who believe are so wonderful, it's impossible to fully comprehend. We've been regenerated. We've been justified. We've been adopted. We've been sanctified. And we will be glorified and live with Him forever. And this is all true. But if we are not careful, we can come to think of our salvation only in those terms. All the benefits that we receive from the work. Christ has done all this for His people. This is true. But we should never lose sight of the fact that our salvation is not just primarily about the gifts of adoption and justification and sanctification. Our salvation is not primarily about the gift of eternal life. The great gift of salvation is Jesus Christ Himself, the man. Jesus is the gift of salvation. Salvation is found in no other name but in Jesus. Jaunty Rhodes writes, At the end of the day, salvation is not a gift from Jesus. It is the gift of Jesus. What God gives us is His own Son. Beloved, what a gift it is. What Jesus did was to come from heaven, to leave His Father. He came in love for His Father and love for us and came to be a man. And the condescension of leaving heaven, leaving where He sat at the right hand of God and coming to earth as a man, how far that gap is, we cannot get it. In Isaiah 55, we read that God's ways are so much higher than our ways. In Isaiah 40, we read that God looks upon the earth and its leaders as grasshoppers. And that makes me think of insects. I thought, if you could become a mosquito. If you could become a mosquito, you think, wow, that's, that's quite a, a distance. Mosquitoes don't have minds. They don't have emotions. They don't think. Mosquitoes are so low on the totem pole of things that are created. If you were to become a mosquito, that's probably a millionth or a trillionth of the condescension of Christ when He came to be a man. And if you doubt that, you meditate on that for a while. You'll see that it's true. What he did when he came to be a man was something that is staggering beyond belief. And he did it out of love for his father and out of love for us.
What a gift. So in conclusion, let's think of our mediator. The only redeemer of God's elect is Jesus Christ. The God-man. Only he could hold that threefold office of mediator in a way that Adam could not. The world had been groaning for a redeemer. The people of God had hoped for a prophet who would show God to them. Jesus came. The people of God had yearned for that perfect high priest who would intercede for them. Jesus came. The people of God had longed for their Messiah King to defeat all their enemies. And Jesus came. But he came in a way that no one thought would happen. He came for the cross. He did his work on the cross. At Golgotha, the cross became his pulpit where he proclaimed the word of God, the truth. At Golgotha, the cross became his altar, where he offered himself as a sacrifice, the perfect priest. At Golgotha, the cross became his throne, over which he conquered sin and death, to rule forever. This is the message of Christianity. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He died as a sacrifice And as prophet, priest, and king, he saves his own. He died for sinners like you and like me to mediate between a holy God and people like us. I recently read Jacob and his account of the the vision he saw where there's a ladder and there's angels ascending and descending. Jesus applied that to himself. He said, I am that ladder. And upon me you'll see angels ascending and descending from heaven to earth. He's the mediator. He's the link for us to the Father. For those of us who have faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone and brook no other gods, we will be His forever. But here's the warning for those who reject him. You need to pursue God while he may be found. You don't know the day of your death. You don't know the day of his return. While he may be found, that's today. If you choose to pursue your own welfare or pleasure or entertainments or other idols, there's nothing left for you. You know this truth. There's nothing left but eternal damnation. Why? Why? You think that's very, that's just very extreme, eternal damnation? Consider the gift that we just spoke of. The gift was beyond all imagining. It's something we will never fully comprehend. It was God Himself. To reject this gift, this amazing gift of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Holy One, is the worst and most heinous sin of all. So as we read in Isaiah, today come. Come to the water. Today come. Stop wasting your money. Come and buy the food that will never, ever, ever spoil. Come to the bread of life. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do come to you right now. And we pray in Jesus' name.
that we would never take for granted the great work that you accomplished by your Son on the cross. Jesus, we thank you that you obeyed your Father and that you loved him perfectly and that you loved us and bore our sin on the cross. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would work in lives right now. Those of us who know you, we pray that we would know you more, that our love for you would be enlarged. And for those who are still in rebellion against you, we pray that our hearts would be softened, that our eyes would be opened, that we would see the danger, the danger of continued rebellion against you, of pursuing our own desires and not yours. And we would come to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.